I'm Anthony Brooks, and this is On Point. When he was 12 years old, Aquilino Gonel left the Dominican Republic for the United States in pursuit of the American dream. He moved to Brooklyn with his mom and brother. He didn't speak English well. He struggled to fit in. And to help pay for college, he joined the Army Reserves, fought in Iraq, and became a U.S. citizen. And in 2006, he fulfilled a lifelong dream and became a police officer at the U.S. Capitol. Three years ago, on January 6, 2021, Sergeant Gunnell's American dream became a nightmare. Rioters spurred on by former President Donald Trump attacked the U.S. Capitol to try to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Gunnell and his fellow officers were badly outnumbered. The mob beat them with pipes, sticks, and rocks, sprayed them with chemicals as they tried to hold the line and defend the capital and the peaceful transfer of power. Because of his injuries suffered that day, Sergeant Gunnell had to retire from his career as a police officer at the age of 42. Now he's written a book about that day and about his life. It's called American Shield, The Immigrant Sergeant Who Defended Democracy. It's co-written with Susan, Susan Shapiro. And Sergeant Gunnell joins us now from Washington, D.C. And Sergeant Gunnell, welcome back. It's great to have you uh, on on point. Thank you for having me on your show. Yeah, and I want to thank you, first of all, for the work you did, uh, especially on January 6th, for putting your life at risk to uh, protect the democratic process. So sincerely, I want to thank you for that. And I'm sorry that you had to go through what you went through. And my guess is that this was a tough anniversary for you. How did you process uh, what you went through? How have you been processing it three years later? Um, I mean, it's uh, it's a third year uh, date of remembrance, not an anniversary, uh, because it's not something that um, it was pleasant for me and a lot of my fellow officers. So uh, we still trying. I'm still trying to. Um, process a lot of the things, uh, a lot of new information that still keep coming, um, becoming out into the light uh, almost every day. Um, so it's, it's it's ongoing the process. Uh, I had, although it has been uh, nine days from the time that I on the immediate aftermath in terms of how I deal with uh, the ramifications of that day. Uh, in terms of um, mental health uh, and and how I see and view uh, the day events. Uh, yeah. And um, I want to hear more about that in terms of your mental health and how you've been recovering, but I think it would be helpful for us to go back to that day and just to set up a couple of things. So I want to play a little bit uh, of tape from January 6th. Um, here's former President Donald Trump. He gave a speech at the Ellipse in Washington, where he falsely claimed that he won the 2020 presidential election and urged his supporters to march to the Capitol, where Congress was preparing to certify the results of the election and Joe Biden's victory. We're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down. Anyone you want, but I think right here, we're going to walk down to the Capitol. And we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them. Because you'll never 
take back our country with weakness, you have to show strength and you have to be strong. And here's a little more of what Trump told his supporters gathered at the Ellipse on that day. But I said, something's wrong here. Something's really wrong. Can't have happened. And we fight. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. So, Sergeant Gunnell, that was early in the day of January 6th. You couldn't have known what was about to happen, what was about to explode. But but how worried were you at that point? Uh, I know you were aware of the kinds of things that Trump was saying to his supporters. Um, I mean, I, the only thing that I knew at that time was uh, what was uh, being reported on the news in terms of uh, him uh, directing the people to gather on uh, here in DC on the fourth. At that time, I was not on. Uh, I had a Twitter account, but I was not uh, very active in social media in terms of like finding out what he was saying. But um, it, it surprised me that he pointed the the, the people uh, to go to to the Capitol, and you know, as 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 he says, you know, let's fight. You know, kind of like alluding to let's let's fight you know if you don't fight then you don't have a country anymore right fight like hell think, he said yeah yeah and a lot of people took that uh, as marching orders um, to include breaching uh, and dismantling some of the fences that we had uh, around the capital uh, the capital was already closed uh, due to the uh, covid um, pandemic and the restrictions that were in place around the country uh, and, you know, those same restrictions came from his own government. Um, so it, 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 it bothered me that he pointed the mob or, or, or those people to the Capitol. Yeah. Then you write at around 1250 in the afternoon, the call came. Your radio blared that all officers were needed at the West Front. Uh, send all you have is what you heard. So you, you suited up, um, preparing for the worst. Uh, and you headed off toward the lower West Terrace entrance of the Capitol. Can you describe the scene that you saw when you arrived? Um, I After I heard that call, I think it was two or three times that it came out on the radio. Uh, and like you said, uh, I, I describe it at length in, in the book, American Shield. I, I immediately told my... My uh, squad members say, let's hurry up, let's get our gear ready and, and rush to the West Front. Uh, by the time I got to the West Front uh, through the underground tunnels, um, right where the president comes out in the iconic arch of uh, the Capitol, um, the minute I opened those doors, uh, I, you could hear the crowd. Uh, roaring uh, and the, some of the officers screaming in pain uh, because the, the, by, by the time I got to the area, to the West Front, from the east uh, where I was staged, um, some of the same mob that claimed to be supportive of police officers that were beating my colleagues. And immediately uh, after I got to the inaugural stage, I noticed that there was a seat of people rushing, kind of like uh, the movie Very Hard, um, you know, and I paused for a second and I said to myself, this is going to be a long day, and it was. Uh, the, by the time I got one flight down to the uh, lower, lower West Terrace, um, the police officer 
my colleagues were getting beat up, yeah. pushed, shoved, taken to the ground, punched, uh, you know. Uh, and by the time, there was no time for me to coordinate, and we just uh, began to defend our, my, I began to defend my colleagues and join the, the fight immediately. Yeah, and the, and the way you describe it is, is so vivid in the book. I'm just going to read one sentence here. You write, The back of my eyes went hot as I witnessed my fellow officers brazenly beaten with pipes, sticks, and rocks by rioters um, who chanted, Fight for Trump and USA, USA, Trump banners, outnumbered American flags. And you write that for a second you froze in fear. I'd seen this kind of unbridled rage in Iraq when the base had been under attack. And so I knew this was bad. So, Sergeant Gunnell, you literally flashed back to war in Iraq that day. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the the infuriating uh, thing because I never expected this type of violence happening um, especially at the capital, uh, our, our seat of democracy, right. where I worked, where I spent many years defending and protecting, and those are these are the type of things that happen in a third world country, uh, in countries where I come from, from the Dominican Republic, and and others. Um, we've seen those things happen, and I never, never in my life did I imagine that. It will happen here in the United States, especially the, uh, those acts uh, being done by native-born citizens. Right. And, and here I am, an immigrant, defending the Capitol, something that they are not doing. You write in the book, and, and you also said this in your testimony before the January 6th committee, that on more than one occasion on that day, you felt like you were going to die. Can you describe what actually happened that made you feel like you were going to die? Well, Vice President, um, sorry, uh, the, the President Biden quoted me on his speech uh, on, on January 6th a uh, couple of days ago. And when he says, uh, th- there was an officer that says um, there was worth, my time in the Capitol was worse than, than my time in Iraq. And it, and it was, in a sense, because in Iraq, I knew the who the enemy were or what to look for in the enemy, and I knew what the da- uh, the danger I signed up isn't this war. Anything could happen in war, but here at the capital, it was surviving one moment after another. When I we lost when we lost the police line, I was afraid for not only my safety but everybody else, including my colleagues and those elected officials inside the capital. Then, as we were retreating, we continued getting attacked, pummel. And, and beating up just for simply doing our job to trying to prevent the mob from going in. Then we go up the stage um, where we lost more ground and then we had to retreat inside the tunnel. Inside the tunnel, um, that's where it was, we, we confronted, at least in my part, um, the most fear, fierce, fierce fight ha- happened in the Capitol where um, officers are getting uh, uh, trampled and, and crushed to death. And multiple things, officers are being pulled into the mob and, and being up. So that's where I almost lost my life uh, a couple of times in there. 
We're talking about the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol with former Capitol Police Officer Sergeant Akalino Gonell. His new book is American Shield, the immigrant sergeant who defended democracy. When we return, we're going to talk a little bit about Sergeant Gonell's life and his decision to come to America um, and become a police officer. Stay with us. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. This is On Point. I'm Anthony Brooks. Sergeant Aquilino Gunnell joins us today. He's a former Capitol Police officer. He's a sergeant who was attacked, severely injured by rioters three years ago on January 6th. We're talking about his book, American Shield, The Immigrant Sergeant Who Defended Democracy. And Sergeant Gunnell, um, I know that you know this, but I'd like to get your response Um Former President Trump, of course, who is running for re-election, uh, has said that if re-elected president, he would pardon uh, the January 6th insurrectionists. I'd like to talk to you about that. He's not the only one. Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, uh, who's um, chair of the Republican uh, conference in Congress, she's called them January 6th hostages. And here's Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's also running as a Republican candidate for president. He recently said that what happened on January 6th was not an insurrection. He also said that he would former he would pardon former President Trump. Here's DeSantis on Russell Brand's podcast, Stay Free, in July 2023. It was not an insurrection. These are people that were there to attend a rally and then they were there to protest. Now it devolved and, and, and it devolved in, into a riot. Uh, but the idea that this was a plan to somehow over, to overthrow the government of the United States is not true. And it's something that the media had spun up to say that they were seditionists is just wrong. And uh, Republican presidential candidate and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley said she would also pardon former President Trump if he's convicted, uh, if he's found guilty of um essentially aiding and abetting an insurrection. Trump currently faces some 44 federal charges and 47 state charges across four separate criminal cases. Here's Haley at a campaign event in New Hampshire last month. I would pardon Trump if he is found guilty. A leader needs to think about what's in the best interest of the country. What's in the best interest of the country is not to have an 80-year-old man sitting in jail that continues to divide our country. What's in the best interest of the country would be to pardon him so that we can move on as a country and no longer talk about him. 
So, Sergeant, Sergeant Gunnell, I'd like to get your response to that. Um, if Trump were found guilty of any or all of these charges, should he be pardoned? What's your view? No, I, I don't think he should be uh, pardoned. And what the reason is, because he will, he has said that he's going to try to do this again uh, if he doesn't win. Um, what is there to say that he's run uh, run again for for the presidency or any other t- uh, type of office and lose and then try to do the same thing. So um, Ron DeSantis, he gets a run. Uh, if he's so comfortable with what happened on the, uh, at the Capitol on January 6th, then he should do that in Tallahassee in his uh, governor mansion and do the same, and have those Antifa people um, do the, the, the same thing. Um, in terms of Nikki Haley, uh, she knows better. She knows better than than, than that. Uh, whether you are 80 years old or not, uh, if you commit a crime, you should be held accountable. You know, if you know, if I were to do any of those things that he's accused of, I would be in jail on January 6th or the 7th. Um, a lot of the uh, elected officials that continue to downplay what happened, they weren't there. So they did, and, and some of them, there were, like Stephanie. Um, you know, if... Calling them hostages, yeah. And for, first of first, they were saying that those were Antifa. So, are you trying to pardon those Antifa uh, rioters? Because that's what you're saying. And these are convicted criminals in court. Had they have been convicted and indicted by the judges? They had gone through the process of going to the court system, a judicial system. So, again, they're not in jail in prison because they political views. They're in jail because the criminal action and felonies that they committed to include assaulting police officers uh, like myself. Right. Um, speaking of uh, Mike Johnson a couple of weeks ago, um, I think it was before the Christmas, uh, Christmas, he said he held a press conference talking about uh, and you're releasing. talking about the current Speaker of the House, Republican Mike Johnson. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So he held a, a press conference where he was talking about releasing the tapes, the videotapes of the Capitol uh, during January 6th. And in the same breath, in the same sentence, he said three different things that are contradicting to each other. He says, we are the party of rule of law and law and order. Um, the... <laughs> We want transparency. And then immediately after saying transparency, he said, we're going to have to blur, we have to blur out the faces of these, quote, innocent people who were inside the Capitol so that the Department of Justice cannot identify and prosecute these individuals. Uh, as if innocent means uh, hunting them, him and his colleagues, room by room, to kill them, to uh, all these people, they had set types, they had tactical gear, military gear, weapons, beating up the police officers, and that was not peaceful. So if there, how if if it wasn't planned, how come they have all this gear? How come they have all this equipment to to what to play? House, doll house. Yeah, and no. Sergeant Gunnell, it's not lost on me either that um, you were there. Um, fighting uh, to protect the Capitol from these people who might well have done harm to someone like uh, Mike Johnson and his Republican colleagues. Um, that seems to be an important point here. Well, one thing is that I want to stress is 
if these people that they claim are hostages, political prisoners, um, patriots, on January 6th, they were breaching and storming the Capitol. Um, they went over layers after layer after layer of security to include assaulting the police officers uh, like myself. If those people, they're considered like the Republican elected officials, including the former president, and Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, if they consider those people those things, as they say, patriot and hostages, then who are we, the police officer, hmm. on January 6th? Who, who, what, what is our title on January 6th? The hostages takers, the sicarios, mm -hmm. the, the sequesters? What is, what is uh, to them, who are we? And this is the party that claimed to have our back. So I want to talk more about January 6th, but I want to come back to that later in the show because, uh, Sergeant Gunnell, if it's okay, I want to get to the story of your life, which, which you write about um, in, in, a, in a really powerful way in American Shield. So let me switch gears just a little bit because it's, I think it's important that people understand sort of where you came from and, and who you are. So you were a kid in the Dominican Republic. You're very close to your grandfather. He was a poor farmer with very little education. So when you had a chance to come to America, what did America represent to you? An opportunity to not only do better for myself, but to uh, help my relatives back home. Um, it was hard for me at first to adapt and assimilate to this new culture. I struggled early on with uh, learning the language um, as I mentioned uh, a lot of a lot of times in, in in the book, I made reference to those things. Mm -hmm. And yet, after each setback, after each challenge, after each adversity that I had to overcome, I tried to um, look for another way to do certain things after I fail, because I, it took me many times just to get or do something. And that's that's what I learned to 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 when I growing up here that I no matter how many times I fail, I could do and try to do something certain things if I approach it a different way and I had the opportunity to do that. Back home, I may not have those things um, because of the the system of governance that we have or the lack of opportunities. But here here was. Uh, with this great opportunity, and that's what I uh, motivated me to, to, to be who I am today. You know, you're 12 years old, and, and you come to Crown Heights in, in Brooklyn, and as you mentioned, and as you write, th those early years weren't easy. And in fact, you describe being in America just two weeks, and your father, who was driving a cab, was stabbed. Um, you were having a, a terrible time, as you said, fitting in, learning English was hard. And, and after a certain point, you had a chance to go back home to, to the Dominican, and you were really committed to staying there at that point, right? And you went to your grandfather, and you told him you wanted to stay, that you wanted to work on the farm with him. What did he tell you when you told him that? Um, it was a hard conversation, but it was honest. Um, I told him everything that was happening to me at that time, that the lack of... Uh, Support that, like uh, both, you know, from from my teachers, from my own parents, because they had their own issues going on. 
Um, the the stabbing, uh, the shooting of my dad first. Uh, he was he was shot. Uh, you know, two weeks after I got here, and then two years after. Our, um, later, two years later, he got stabbed. That's right. So, so he was shot first. I miss I misspoke there. So he, he was shot first and then stabbed later on. Still correct. Ter- terrible story. And, and 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 for me to have the honest conversation with my grandfather, um, watching him. Uh, struggle by himself because when I was growing up, it was just my uh, his son and myself and my brother who were helping him out in in the farm and watching him overwork, doing a lot all these things by himself because by that by then my uncle had moved out and uh, away from 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 the farm area and. I saw him struggle, so I wanted to be there for him. But at the same time, I was struggling. I knew that if had I stayed back home, I would be more useful. But I was then he made me realize that had not that I was giving up on the opportunity that I had, which is not many people get to have, right. especially here in the United States. So he convinced me to to return um, and, and apply myself a little harder, and that's what I did. Yeah, and eventually, after you came back, uh, you decide to join the Army. You realized, among other things, that this was a good way to help pay for college. Uh, it helped you become Amer- an American citizen. And what you didn't count on was the attacks of 9-11 and then being deployed to Iraq. What did you feel about the war and, and America's involvement in Iraq at that time? Well, when I joined the military, to be honest, and like I mentioned in the book, it, it's... It was just merely me trying to, one, uh, get an education, two, getting away from my dad because I knew we we had our differences given the fact how he was treating my mom at that time. Um, once I realized that it w- I didn't have enough money to, to pay for college, then I had to figure out a way to, to continue my education because I saw that as a way for me to get out of uh, poverty uh, uh, to open more doors. I joined the military, and immediately, I think the Kosovo War was happening around that time, and I volunteered for that. I wanted to do something good and help people, uh, but they never picked me for that as well. Mm. Um, but then 9/11 happened, and immediately I, I was on on the base uh, doing a 17-day uh, uh, orders that I have. Uh, just trying to pay for my school, um, and, and and when that happened, that my education and my all the things that ha- were around me happening um, took a back seat because I knew that there was a possibility that I that we were going to war, and I was ready and I wanted to go, uh, and even I also wanted to go to Ground Zero and uh, uh, help the rescue mission that um, for survivors. Yeah. Well, in Iraq, you were <clears throat> mostly confi- confined to an American base, but but you saw some awful things, including some of your comrades being torn apart by mortar attacks. I'm just wondering what that experience in Iraq did did to you, and how it altered your view of of America. Um, it was hard time for me. Um, you know, I, although I had master. The language uh, a lot better than as a kid. I still struggle with my accent, and sometimes I don't know if you could tell. Now I I do have a thick accent, and people 
think that just because I have a thick accent, um, I don't know a lot and no, I don't know how to speak, but guess what? I do, I do know how to speak and then I do know how to com- understand and comprehend. Mm-hmm. Um, I know two languages and that's hard enough to, to deal with, uh, compared to one, like some people want to make fun of my accent, but that's on them. Um, in terms of my time in, in, in Iraq, uh, it was hard because I was there, um, in the middle of the war. Uh, one of the few Latinos that in my company, um, in, uh, you know, and we were subjected to certain things, especially moved around, like you said. I volunteered for a couple of times for a mission out to go outside the, the base. Um, and, and that was, to me, that was uh, eye-opening because I knew poverty. I knew, coming from the Dominican Republic, I knew some of these things. A lot of the officer, uh, soldiers they had issue and they were homesick a lot because they had never seen another country ever and, and grew up with a lot of uh, amenities. Um, I, I, I didn't have those things. So for me, it was easier to assimilate. The only difference that I saw was the language. Uh, instead of being Spanish, it was in Arabic. <laughs> so, right. so I adjusted fairly quick. But in terms of the struggles that we did, um, and, you know, we had a detachment in Abu, Abu Ghraib right when um, the uh, human, uh, human abuse was happening uh, with the prisoners in there. Uh, we tried to t- stay clear out of, out of those things. Um, then we saw motor rounds, uh, incidents, which I was responsible to um, tally who was injured, and uh, from my for my company, and then reported those things. I I did uh, um, a security guard at the uh, hospital, uh, trying uh, to to prevent the uh, prisoner of wars that or that we have or in enemy combatant injure people from injuring our own uh, soldiers and and sailors at uh, the hospital. Um, the same thing with uh, guard tower, guard duties that we had to do. So there's a lot of things that I did, uh, including convoys as well. Right, right. Um, we're coming up on a break. So I'm going to ask you this uh, really and ask for a sort of brief answer because we don't have a lot of time. But one of the things you write about in the book was the whole idea of going to war in Iraq was for a search for weapons of mass destruction that were that were never found and I'm just wondering how that made you think about the war um, it changed my perspective because you know although we went for those reasons I tried to do everything in my power to um, to do what I was right including when I saw the any misbehavior from my own force and identify those things uh, right. unfortunately I we came back I came back with uh, PTSD from the war and, so hold uh, it right there, Sergeant Aquilino Gonell, after a quick break. His new book is American Shield, The Immigrant Sergeant Who Defended Democracy. We're going to have more when we return. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair. 
a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Anthony Brooks, and we're back with Sergeant Aquilino Gonell. He's a former U.S. Capitol Police officer who was there on January 6th when it was attacked by rioters. He was injured. Sergeant Gonell's new book is American Shield, the immigrant sergeant who defended democracy. And Sergeant Gonell, just before the break, I'm sorry I had to cut you off. You were just talking about um, what happened to you when you came home from Iraq, you, you you mentioned that you were suffering from PTSD because of what you went through there. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Um, thanks for, for having me uh, again, uh, Anthony. Um, the my time in Iraq was not easy. There was uh, I had a supervisor that had a gun hole for me um, at that time for you know for whatever reason. Um, you mean he had he, it in for you? He wanted to make life difficult for you. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. I, I, it, it's clearly, in my opinion, that that's what that's what it was. Um, but then again, there were all the uh, things that were happening uh, around me, uh, like things that I couldn't control: the motor attacks, uh, the violence from from uh, the enemy, um, and I was subjected to those things. Uh, uh, for my platoon sergeant Prendergrass, he survived, uh, and myself, uh, we survived a, a, a motor rounds uh, a couple of times. Um, so, just being being exposed to those things uh, kind of like uh, gave us PTSD, um, yeah. you know. And I never thought that I would come back. It took me years for. Uh, to realize that I was suffering from PTSD because I was in, in denial. Uh, it's something that over time I realized uh, through treatment and, and from action, from that uh, my action that all the people noticed that I was not okay. So I took it up on myself to to get get myself checked out, and it was PTSD. And I, you know, unfortunately, it's a disease that I had to deal with. It, uh, it was uh, aggravated on January six. Um, and, and the aftermath, because um, everything that happened to me, um, you know, more than 40 people attacked me on that day, yeah. uh, sometimes individually, sometimes simultaneously, uh, and, you know, all at once. 
So I want to talk to you a little bit about your decision to become a Capitol Police officer because early in the book, it's a, it's a very nice passage, you get, uh, as a high school student, um, you visit the Capitol and um, you're actually treated very well by a Capitol Police officer who made a bit of an impression on you because he was very friendly. He connected, I, I, if I'm recalling co- correctly, he connected with you as a fellow Latino and, and uh, made an impression on you and you sort of held, kept that dream with you for, for, for years to come, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, and the, the, the backstory of that trip is that that was well my attempt to skip school uh, <laughs> um, because I was struggling with the language and uh, my uh, guiding counselor um, told me, hey, your girlfriend is going uh, on a trip. And, uh, and I said, oh, really? She never, <laughs> she didn't mention to me to that. But uh, nevertheless, I, uh, I registered myself to, I volunteered to, to go on the trip and I was happy that they picked me uh, as well. And uh, kind, of, kind of like had a, a nice date to learn a, a lot more about this country who opened uh, its arm for me uh, in terms of the historical ev- things and events here in the ca- uh, the capital. Um, and then uh, when I got to the capital, I, uh, like you said, I, I, I met that this uh, well-spoken professional uh, police officer who it was nothing like the police officers that I had come in contact with in, in the Dominican Republic. Uh, you know, always, you, you know, sometimes we, we joke around in, in, the, in the Dominican Republic, sometimes you don't know who the bad guy is, uh, whether the police officer or the, or the person um, mugging you, you know, uh, which one is better. <laughs> but, you know, uh, at the Capitol in, uh, in D.C., um, this person was very nice to me and uh, gave, uh, gave me a good impression of how the profession was. And that kind of like planted a seed for me in the future. Right. Well, I want to go back to January 6th um, and get a little more specific about what happened to you. Because during the attack on the Capitol, you sustained some pretty serious injuries, if, if I'm recalling correctly, to your foot, your shoulder, your biceps, you require, your bicep, you required multiple surgeries. And the injuries eventually required you to retire from the Capitol Police at, at just 42 years old. Can I ask you how you're doing now? Physically, how are you doing, first of all? Uh, physically, I had recovered from, from most of my injuries. Uh, you know, I still have uh, a little bit um, of uh, range of motion restriction on my left arm. But uh, overall, uh, most of my physical injury have healed. Uh, I'm able to do a lot of things that I used to do um, uh, prior, uh, during six. Uh, although I now I, I had to do it with a little more conscience uh, about my restriction and what I could, my limits. Yeah. Um, in terms of the other injuries, uh, which is the most uh, severe one for me, or and that's w- one of the reasons why I had to re- uh, medically retire because it was my PTSD. That's what. Uh, was triggered uh, most triggering for me, yeah, because I had risked my life uh, for elected officials, and this, then again, those same individuals turn around and uh, side with the mob, uh, the people who were assaulting me and my colleagues, the same people who were hunting them down room by room uh, inside the Capitol on January six, 
And for me, that was triggering. There were times that I had to sit down and sit in my car after arriving early in the morning and, and decide whether I need, I wanted to um, muster the courage to, to go back inside the Capitol to the crime scene and then listen to uh, people like, like like those elected officials who side with the, with the insurrectionists. Um, and not only was that triggering for my PTSD, but then it created moral injury because I knew that I did, I know that I did my job. I know I was, um, it was my duty to do those things that I did. And now they're telling me that um, they, they would rather side with the rioters, the people and calling them hostages and, and patriots and political prisoners. Who are we then to them, the police officer? Yeah, you know what I mean. So that's that's the moral, uh, and in in one one thing on that is I kept thinking because of the action that I did on January six, and if there was another instance where I had to do something similar to those things, I kept thinking would I not only had to worry about the threat in front of me, but now I had to worry about the elected official from the Republican side who had downplayed what happened behind me. So I, I had two different things where I, I didn't feel comfortable being around. So, and that's one of the reasons why I left the Capitol because I, I don't trust the political uh, Republican official inside the Capitol to have my back. Would they be uh, assisting me in securing the Capitol or would they try to hold me down and restrain me so I don't do my job and that's that's hard for me to or anybody to to swallow yeah i understand well speaking of uh, republican uh, officials who might not have your back um here's uh, some tape i want to play um a cut from republican congressman clay higgins of louisiana from november 2023 who falsely suggested that january 6 was orchestrated by the fbi who he claimed sent buses of agents disguised as trump supporters so here's an exchange between FBI Director Christopher Ray and Congressman Higgins. Uh, you're going to hear Director, uh, FBI Director Ray speaking first. You are asking whether the violence at the Capitol on January 6th was part of some operation orchestrated by FBI sources and or agents. The answer is emphatically You're saying not. no. No. You're saying no. Not okay. violence orchestrated Let's by FBI on. sources or agents. You know what a ghost vehicle is? Director, director of the FBI certainly should. You know what a ghost bus is? A ghost bus? Ghost bus. I'm not sure I've used that term before. Okay. These buses are nefarious in nature and were filled with FBI informants dressed as Trump supporters. Okay, that was Republican Congressman Clay Higgins making a claim for which uh, there is no evidence or proof uh, speaking uh, with FBI Director uh, Christopher Wray. Uh, Sergeant Gunnell, when you hear things like that, what does it what does it make you think? Um, disappointing, um, very gullible on their part because on January six they knew who the threat was, they knew who was responsible for it. Um, I knew, and that's why I risked my life for it, uh, trying to protect them. And now they, now that they are away three years away from, from that horrible day, they forgot and or they had chosen to lie to themselves and pretend that they were not fearful for their lives. 
Um, while they were running for their lives, I was surviving and trying and, and, and try, uh, risking all to protect them to get so they could get to safety. And unfortunately, they had shown me that they disregard any sacrifices and they desecrate any sacrifices that myself and my colleague did on that day. If they, you know, it's easy for them to say, make all these accusations. All they had to do is go to uh, the prisons in DC and talk to the Gen uh, Six rioters themselves and ask them how many of them were driven on those ghost bus that he's talking about? How many of them are Antifa or part of the FBI? These are criminal people right. that were found liable for their actions on January 6th because they attacked police officers. They breached the Capitol and they were the target themselves of the mob. So it, they, they are willfully choked. Cho choosing to be ignorant and, and for political purpose. Right. Toward the very end of the book, you write, uh, you write this. You write, despite the January 6th committee's recommendation that Trump be criminally prosecuted for inciting the insurrection, conspiracy to defraud America, making false statements and obstructing Congress, nobody seemed able to stop him from running for our highest office. At age 76, he is allowed to go after his old job, while my career was destroyed at 42 because of him. And this is the part of the story that is really hard to read because it feels <clears throat> so unjust. I mean, as an immigrant, you did everything right. You worked hard. You go to college. You served the country in Iraq. You became a police officer. But you end up losing your career because of those injuries you sustained on January 6th. And um, this is leading to a question, and I'm not even sure what the question is. But, I mean, I guess, have you made peace of some sort with that, Sergeant Connell? I could tell you that, do I miss my job? Yes, absolutely. Of course. I miss being there, providing for my family, and also doing what I, was, what I wanted, what I, my profession. Um, I had seven years left before I, my mandatory retirement, if I chose to. Uh, so I, I had many years to left uh, in, in my service to this country. Um, these, this person took a lot, not only for, from me, but from a lot of those people, including those who are in jail because of the lies that he um, continued to propagate. And it's unfair. It's not fair that he continued to be running for presidency where he's clearly shown that he's orchestrated. He's now saying things outright that, you know, kind of like if I lose again, then we might do the same thing again. Uh, another insurrection because he plants and telegraph all these things that he's willing to do. And uh, here are the elected officials like... Uh, Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, and, and the other ones continue to out, uh, placate and support uh, and downplay everything that he says he's going to do and continue to do mm. or what he wants to do. Now he's saying that he wants to be a dictator and these people, the people of the rule of law, law and order, uh, con con conservatives, um, they 
continue to follow along. Like, insane. Like, we had gone to war to fight these depots, to fight these authoritarian regimes overseas. And here you have somebody who's telling them, hey, I want to be like them, like those people. I want to be like Putin. Yeah. Uh, put me back in charge, and, and I'll be your first king or uh, authoritarian uh, president. Before, it's insane. Yeah. Before we run out of time, I want to ask you about um, your future. Um, your fellow officer, former fellow officer, Harry Dunn, he served 15 years on the force and was one of four officers along with you who testified before the House committee investigating the attack on the Capitol. He's running for Congress. Um, uh, he's running for the Democratic nomination to replace uh, Representative John Sarbanes in Maryland. I'm wondering if you're thinking about that. Um, at this moment, I'm not, but I, su I do support him. Uh, he, I think he'll be he'll do a great uh, job as a uh, as a congressperson. Um, before I even entertain that thing, uh, that making that move, I think I, the first person I had to convince is my wife. And she's not ready for that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so if I cannot convince her for for those things, then, uh, well, you know, sounds like you you're, sounds like you might want to try <laughs> no, to convince your wife. No, no, no not, not yet, not, not yet, not, not yet, yet. All right. not yet. It's something that is very personal. It's a lot, you know, it implicates a lot of things. And uh, at this time, I'm I'm more focused on my continue my healing, continue to serve this country in a different way, in my community as well, whatever. Uh, that that encompass in the future. I had not given a lot of those thoughts. I uh, enjoyed my family time with my son and my wife. And uh, for right now, I'm, I'm good and I continue to heal. All right. Well, Sergeant Aquilino Gonell, he's a former U.S. Capitol Police officer. He's author, along with Susan Shapiro, of the book American Shield, The Immigrant Sergeant Who Defended Democracy. Sergeant Gunnell, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the book. Uh, thank you for what you did on January 6th. Um, it was heroic. You deserved better. But thank you for uh, joining us today. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Anthony. And uh, I just want people to take an opportunity to 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 go and, and get this book. Uh, it's, a, it's a book about... It's a good one, and I recommend it. And I'm going to jump it, in because time is running it, out. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point.